Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? It is good to see you. Happy Mother's Day to all you mamas in the building, and good to see the rest of you. Excited to get into God's Word with you this morning. If we have not met, my name is Brian. I am one of the pastors here, and we are in part 16 of our series called The Empowered Church, where we are studying the book of Acts line by line. We're learning about all of the wild, crazy, miraculous stuff that took place through the power of the Holy Spirit in the years following Jesus' ascension as, as the church was just getting started. And we're studying this book because we believe that the same Holy Spirit that was present and at work in the book of Acts is present and at work today. Amen. So we want to learn more and more about what that means and what that looks like. Now, Last week, uh, my buddy Pastor Judah led us through uh, Acts chapter 8, and just an amazing, amazing story, and he was able to draw out some really, really helpful principles for uh, evangelism, and hey, how do we share our faith in a way that makes sense and is kind of in line with who God has made us to be and isn't scary or awkward? If you missed it, grab the podcast, because it was such a, such helpful, so helpful and so practical, and today... We're going to turn the page to Acts chapter 9. So if you have a Bible or a Bible-equipped mobile device, I want to invite you to go there, Acts chapter 9. If you need a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And I've entitled this message, Saving a Bully, Empowering a Saint. Saving a Bully, Empowering a Saint. And if I do my job, then by the time I am done, that title will make sense. Now, this is, the story we're looking at is one of the most famous stories in all of scripture, and I don't believe it's any exaggeration to say that outside of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is the most consequential story in the entire New Testament. The story centers around a man named Saul, who later in his life will start going by the Roman version of his name, which is Paul, but at this point, his name is Saul. What's going to happen in this sermon is I'm going to keep trying to say Saul, 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 but inevitably, I will say Paul accidentally on at least a few occasions. So if you find yourself getting bored, you can at least tally the number of times I say Paul instead of Saul. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that the apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament. He wrote the letters that are in our Bible. God did incredible work in him and through him. But when we meet him in this story, that's not exactly the situation he was in. His friends still called him Saul, and he was about the last person you would expect to be a part of the Jesus movement at any point in history, right? And we first meet Saul in Acts chapter 7, towards the very end of the chapter, after the stoning of a man named Stephen. And Pastor Lance led us through this story a couple of weeks ago. Stephen was a martyr. He died for his faith in Jesus. And at the end of Acts chapter 7, there is what almost appears to be an irrelevant detail that's just sort of thrown in, in Acts chapter 7, 58. It says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it's like, okay, a man is being killed here. Like, why are we concerned with where people are putting their coats? But a couple of verses later, we learn a little bit more about him. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 tells us that Saul approved of this execution. And it says that following Stephen's death, there was a huge amount of Christian persecution in Jerusalem. In fact, the persecution got so bad that Christians were fleeing the city and settling in different places around Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church 
And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So, just to set the table as clearly as I know how, Saul is not a good guy. He's not the sort of person who got invited to a lot of Christmas parties. And why is Saul this way? Why is he so violent and vengeful? Why is he so obsessed with persecuting Christians and stamping out this new movement? Well, he's doing this because he believes he's serving God. He is Jewish and he believes that these people that claim that Jesus is the Christ are blasphemers. They are false teachers. They are, in Saul's view, dishonoring God with their beliefs and that has to be stopped in Saul's view. But I can't help but wonder, I've wondered this for a long time, I can't help but wonder if there was something else going on to explain and that motivated Saul's behavior. Yes, I know that throughout human history, there have been plenty of examples of people who have gotten violent in defense of their religious beliefs. Saul is not, almost did it. Saul is not that unique in that regard, right? But I don't think that Saul was simply a case of somebody who is filled with some sort of righteous hatred for what he viewed as a false religion. I think there's something else going on. See, if we understand Saul's background, we know that he was no ordinary Jewish man. He had been trained in the Old Testament, in the law, at the most elite schools by Gamaliel, the most elite rabbi in that time period. He had been trained in Judaism from a young age. He knew the law of God forwards and backwards. He was taught to zealously desire to keep it. And all throughout his education, he was the star pupil. In fact, later on, writing in the book of Philippians, he would say that in his former life, that when it came to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He was the best of the best of the best. And yet, we have some other writing from him that would seem to indicate that carrying the weight of being this wonder, you know, person who is meant to be at the top of the class and meant to be perfect and meant to be fulfilling the law just right, that that was weighing on him a little bit and he struggled to keep that up. In fact, and there's, some, there's some, some words he writes in Romans chapter 7 where he would say that the law brought death to him. And he said that not because the law was bad, but because he struggled to keep it. And for someone like him, who was so obsessed with following the law perfectly, to struggle in that way, that was a problem. Because again, he was supposed to be this champion of Judaism, an expert in every last word of the law, who is as strict and as righteous and as observant as a person could be. And it is not a far stretch at all to suggest that he was filled with a crippling sense of inadequacy because he knew he couldn't live up to it. His identity was in his performance, and this was true then and it's true now. Anytime we rely on our performance in anything to be what gives us a sense of value and purpose and worth and identity, we will be kept insecure and anxious because there will never be enough. So what did Saul do? Well, he found a good therapist and started going to therapy and he talked through his issues and he eventually became this really healthy and well-adjusted person who was able to kind of unpack the issues from his past and uh, just become the sort of person who could accept the fact that he wasn't perfect and show himself a little bit of grace. Not exactly. 
That's not what he did at all. He overcompensated. In his insecurity, he overcompensated. And he became a violent monster who lashed out at others in an effort to prove his own righteousness. Now, years later, and we're going to refer a lot to things that Saul slash Paul would write years, years later. Years later, after he'd become a Christian, he would reflect in 2 Corinthians 12 on the place of weakness in his life. And he would even go so far as to say that, that God's power is made perfect in his weakness. That when he himself is weak, that is when God is strong. And I hope you know that's true for you. But pre-Christian Paul couldn't tolerate his own weakness. So he had to lash out. Is it possible that underneath all of this aggressive and violent behavior was a lingering sense of guilt and shame? He could not prove the intensity of his commitment to God by keeping the law perfectly. So he decided to prove it by destroying those he perceived as a threat. In other words, Saul was not a tough guy. He just wasn't. He was insecure. And in his insecurity, he became a bully. And as a bully, he destroyed people. And this is a story that has been played out in human history over and over and over again. And I wonder how often similar stories play out today. So I was bullied quite a bit when I was a kid, so I'm perhaps a little bit sensitive on this topic. And because of that, I'll check in with my kids who are in fifth grade and fourth grade periodically and just kind of check in with them. Like, hey, are you being bullied about this and that? Or anyone picking on you about anything? Like, just anything that you want to talk about with me? And, and praise the Lord. Like, nine times out of ten, they'll answer no. And the one time out of ten, it tends to be something that they seem to be able to process through okay. But something that we talk about in our house is that if someone is being overly critical of you, someone's bullying you, if someone's really picking on you, like number one, you don't need to deal with that. You can remove yourself from that situation. But number two, if somebody is bullying you, there's an opportunity there to pray for that person. Why? Because if somebody is picking on you, that absolutely means there is something going on in them that they don't like. Because nobody who is happy and confident and self-assured and secure just decides to start putting other people down and start harming people, right? Bullying is a sign of insecurity. And that's true if you're in the fourth grade. That's true if you're in your fourth decade of life. That's true if you're in your, in your, in your eighth decade of life. And see, you and I, we might not drag people to prison and have them killed, but I think we act out of our insecurity more often than we realize. I mean, think about this. How much of our criticism of others, really, if we're being honest, is rooted in our own insecurity? Now, granted, there are plenty of bad ideas in the world that are worth criticizing. I'm not trying to say that there aren't. But we tend to take it a little too far. Let me give you some examples. So, so for example, uh, say I'm, I'm struggling as a parent. Like, I'm trying to figure it out, raising kids, this and that. But, boy, I'll feel a lot better at my, about myself if I can criticize somebody else and the parenting techniques that they're using or the educational choices that they're making. If I can criticize somebody else's approach to parenting, especially on the Internet, where all the really courageous people go, then I'm going to feel better about myself right? I'll feel better about myself. Or, or sure, my, my work performance isn't where it needs to be, or I'm struggling, or you know, this and that. But, but if I can just find somebody else to criticize, find somebody else to step on or direct negative attention toward that person, then I'm going to be okay. Or we go completely the other direction. 
right? Our insecurity shows itself by us saying, well, anytime I do anything positive, I'm going to make sure the whole world knows about it. And as long as I can do that, I'll be okay. Or how about this one? Sure, yeah, I've got sin in my life, but let's not talk about that, because if I can just find people that sin differently than me, I can criticize them. I can scream and yell about how, le- how, how, how horrible and terrible their sin is, and I will show how zealous I am for the Lord by criticizing the sin of other people. And here's the deal. When we do that, we say it is about honoring the Lord. I don't buy that for a second, because if you and me really cared about honoring the Lord, we would spend way less time pointing out sins in other people we don't struggle with, and a lot more time looking in the mirror. Isn't that true? And I'll, I'll, I'll step in and take that as much as anybody else, right? So often, it's more about insecurity than it is about what we say it's about. Or how about this one? I got more for you. Uh, Sure, I don't have really like a secure sense of identity. I'm trying to struggling to figure out who I am, but rather than, I can't be honest about that. I can't talk about that with somebody. So instead, I'm gonna act tough or I'm gonna act aloof or I'm gonna act harsh or I'm gonna get defensive and demanding and that's gonna convince people that I'm somebody. Listen, y'all, I've lived enough life to know that when someone needs to show me how tough they are or how smart they are or how powerful they are, it's like, okay, what's going on here? What, what are we papering over right now? And I know that from the other side because I've been the one doing the papering over. What's that about? It's insecurity. It's insecurity, plain and simple. We're insecure and we act out in all sorts of dysfunctional ways. And this is why our faith is so invaluable as a foundation for your life and mine because the scriptures teach us a real antidote to our insecurity. The scriptures teach us that we are loved by God before we can ever lift a finger. The scriptures teach us that the most important thing about us is that we are children of God, and that is an identity that cannot be taken away. Scripture teaches us that we are not defined by our accomplishments or our reputations, but rather the wholeness and the healing and the you're gonna be okay and the acceptance that we all crave is found in God's radical acceptance of us through Jesus Christ, not in anything we're gonna do out in the world, right? That is the antidote to our insecurity. And when we let this truth sink deeply into our hearts, what we begin to find is our need for posturing goes down. Our need to act out in all sorts of dysfunctional ways that we tie ourselves in knots trying to justify. Our need to do that goes down. Our need to constantly prove ourselves goes down. Why? Because we realize I have been given everything that I need in Christ and I can live from a place of secure identity. If you're following along on your bulletin, if you're taking notes, here's your fill in the blank. God is greater than your insecurity. God is greater than your insecurity. And what I want to tell you as someone who has run a lot of laps on the insecurity trail, that God can heal our insecurity. God can meet us in our insecurity. And I just wonder if in those times when you and me, when we're feeling insecure, if instead of getting defensive or harsh or braggadocious, instead of turning into our, attack, our own attack dog defense attorney, instead of looking for someone else to blame or criticize, what if instead we took our insecurity to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm starting to feel insecure again. 
Help me to remember that I belong to you and help me to live and speak and act, not out of insecurity, but out of the security that you offer me. I just, I'm crazy enough to believe I think we'd be a lot healthier if we did that. So our story begins in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, where it says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is terrorizing Christians in Jerusalem, but that's not enough for him. It says he's breathing threats and murder, a reference to the fact that Saul quite literally was going around threatening Christians with arrest, and he was sanctioning and approving of their murders, their actual executions. And he goes to the high priest and asks for letters, granting him permission to go to Damascus and look for Christians there. Now, Damascus was a very important city in the ancient world. It was about 140 miles from Jerusalem, which meant it was about a six-day walk. And it was a center of commerce and trade and culture. And that meant it was very important because ideas that took root in Damascus could spread out quite easily into the rest of the ancient world. We know that there was a strong Jewish population in Damascus, and clearly and there was enough of a Christian population that it got onto Saul's radar, and he felt like he needed to go do something about it. So he essentially asks the high priest and says, hey, can you authorize me to go to the synagogues, look for Christians, and bring them back here so we can take care of them? Quick side note, by the way, I don't know if you caught this, do you see the term that Luke, the author of Acts, uses to describe Christians? He uses the term, the way. And he's the only New Testament author to use that term to describe Christians. And later on in the book of Acts, he would refer to the way of salvation or the way of the Lord. Jesus, in John chapter 14, referring to himself, said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all of this, this language, it underscores a simple but such profound and important truth that it's, that's at the heart of Scripture. And that is that our God has made a way for us to be saved. That we on our own, we are sinful people and our sin has separated us from God and left us without hope of eternity with him. There's no amount of good works that we can, do, that we can perform to overcome that separation. But God made a way where there wasn't a way for us in sending Jesus into the earth where he lived a perfect life, where he died a criminal's death and in his dying paid the penalty for our sin. And he rose from the grave so that we might know that death has been defeated. And the way of salvation is not through moral improvement or doing some unknown amount of good deeds. That is the path to Saul's paranoia. The way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the way. So Saul gets his papers. He heads out on his journey with his envoy. And as they're approaching Damascus, something that was not exactly in the schedule takes place. Verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Later in the book of Acts, when 
Then Paul is, accounting, is recounting this instance. He will say that the light that shone before him was brighter than the midday sun. The appearance of bright lights or lightning is a common theme of theophanies or divine appearances that we see in scripture. In this case, there is a literal flash of light, but let us not miss its symbolic significance. See, it is through the appearance of divine light that Saul is physically blinded, but he begins to recognize his spiritual blindness. See, he was so caught up in his ideology and his agenda and his opinions, and he had convinced himself that he was doing God's work with all of the hate and anger and violence and vengeance, but he was blind. And I wonder if that same thing still happens today. I wonder if we get so caught up in our agendas and our ideas that we can become blind ourselves. I mean, probably not, but. Are we open to the possibility that maybe the zeal that we use to justify the way we treat and talk about people that look different or, or, or believe different or act different than we do or think different than we do, are we open to the possibility that the zeal we use to talk about the way, to defend the way we talk about those folks maybe isn't in alignment with God's will at all And instead, it's a symptom of our insecurity and our blindness. Is it possible that our tendency to condemn those who struggle with sins different than our own is less about zeal for the Lord and more about not knowing what to do with our own guilt and having an impoverished sense of God's grace for ourselves, which then gives us an impoverished sense of grace for others? These types of aggressive behaviors, they just don't come, tend to come from a person who is secure. Is it possible that we're blind and we need God's help to help us see? See, the light that Saul sees is so startling that he falls to the ground, but as he's hitting the deck, he manages to get out these words. Excuse me, he hears a voice as he hits the deck saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we can only imagine how startling all of this was, but he manages to say back, who are you, Lord? Which the term Lord here just is like sir or ma'am. There's nothing really more to it in this context than that. But never in his wildest dreams or nightmares could he have imagined the words that he was going to hear next. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Oh, are you now? This is a complete refutation of everything Saul thought he knew and believed up to this point. Saul had given his life to destroying Christians who believed what he thought was blasphemy about Jesus being the Son of God. And yet here is Jesus in his glorified heavenly form, blinding him with light, speaking to him from the heavens, and Saul is on his face. Now before we continue to see what Jesus actually said to him, there's an important element to this that I don't want us to miss. Just a moment, like a fraction of a moment of God's presence put Saul on the ground. It blinded him. God is powerful, y'all. And I don't care how strong and sophisticated and fancy and intelligent and powerful and rich we think we are, if you and I experienced the presence of God for even a split second, we would be on our faces in reverence. 
Yes, God invites us into fellowship with him. Yes, God loves us more than anyone else. Yes, God is gracious and merciful and kind and compassionate, but may we never forget, no matter how great we think we are, he is not on our level. He is not on our level. So if you know me, you know that I coach my kids' sports teams. Like half of my illustrations come from this experience. And uh, I love coaching. And I'm noticing as my kids get older, I'm coaching older kids. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but as kids get older, they talk back a lot more. I'm discovered, like this is news. I don't know why you're not writing this down. Like this is a profound observation I've made. And, and, and I, it was funny, this last basketball season, we had a great season, great, great group of kids, really, really enjoyed it, loved basketball. And I found that especially the older kids on our team, uh, they would talk back and talk back and talk back. And in the course of their talking back, they would call me bro. <laughs> oh, come on, bro. Oh, you serious, bro? And one day at practice, I just stopped everything and I'm like, hold up. Just so we're really, really clear here, I am not your bro. I am your coach. Things have gotten a little casual here, apparently. We are not on the same level, right? I had to make that really, really clear that we are not on the same level. Now, them being preteen boys, of course, they responded back to me saying, you are right, coach. We are so sorry for our disrespect, and we're going to do whatever you say from now on, sir. At least that's how I remember it. It might have been a little different. I don't know. Who's to say? Anyway, moving on. I, listen. I'm just an adult working with kids. We're not on the same level, but that distance is pretty small. God is not our bro. God is not our bro. Is it possible we get a little casual with him sometimes? God is powerful and glorious and majestic. God holds our breath in his hands. He is worthy of not merely our consideration and our nice thoughts. He is worthy of our worship. And this God who is mightier and more glorious than we could ever understand, he has made us to delight in him, to enjoy him, to make him the foundation of our lives. God is not interested in our religious pretending or half-hearted devotion. He's not interested in our attempts to acknowledge him while trying to remain in control of our lives. He has made us for himself. And if we make anything else the foundation of our lives, we will be left wanting. God is not our bro. God is not our add-on. He is not simply our hell avoidance insurance. He is our powerful and magnificent God who made us to know him and to love him and to be transformed by him. However great or sophisticated we imagine ourselves to be, God is infinitely greater. Saul understood that real well after this experience he had right here. Getting back to the text, the divine voice identifies itself, it's Jesus. He calls himself the one whom you are persecuting. And what we see here is that Jesus, the strength of how much he identifies with the church. By the time Saul started doing the things that Saul did, Jesus had resurrected and gone, he had ascended back up into heaven. So for him to say, for him to say you're persecuting me, it's not persecuting the physical, literal Jesus. Saul is persecuting the church. But that just shows how strongly Jesus identifies with us his church, Jesus would say in Luke chapter 10, if they reject you, they're rejecting me. Jesus views an attack on his people as an attack on him. And I find it amazing that 
Later on, once Saul had become Paul and he's writing the New Testament, he's even the one who's writing that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, that God so strongly identifies with us, his people. The story continues with some instructions from Jesus for Saul. Continuing in verse 6, it says, But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Jesus says, get up and head into Damascus. Everyone in Saul's traveling party is completely stunned, and most of them are likely looking for a clean pair of pants, but they manage to get Saul off the ground. They, he's blind, and the people who are with him lead him into Damascus, where for three days he just sits there and does nothing except be blind and not eat or drink. Three days! Like, that's a long time to sit in the dark and do nothing. And we don't know why he didn't eat or drink. Some commentators think that he physically was not able to after the experience he'd had on the road to Damascus. Some others think that it was an act of repentance and, and penitence. And certainly we have some scriptural examples from places like the book of Jonah or, or in 1 Kings, examples of people who are turning from their sin and as a sign of their repentance, they, they fast voluntarily. We don't know. Whatever his reasons for it were, this much is clear. He had been utterly broken by his experience. His world has been turned upside down. The very foundation of his life had been broken. Now God was going to build him back up in time, but in this moment, he was about as low as he could get. Now, there's an element of this that is easy to miss, and I don't want us to, because it's so important. What is happening here with Saul, this is not God's judgment on Saul. This is God's grace. This is God's kindness. He is not punishing Saul. He is saving him. God, in his grace and his kindness, he is exposing the futility and the falseness of Saul's angry, violent, and vengeful ways. He is exposing the futility of his false beliefs. This is grace. And see, sometimes you and I, we need God to take us through a similar process, don't we? Sometimes God needs to go to extreme measures to help us recognize that all of our egotism, all of our chest thumping, all of our pride, where we're trying to look like someone to something, that help us recognize that all of that is an act that will lead us nowhere. Sometimes we need God to help us see that our selfishness is a dead end. And that if we're really being honest, our zeal for our opinions, it's more about our own pride and our own tribalism than it is a concern for the truth. When this happens, it's difficult and it's disorienting and it's painful. But that is not a punishment. It is grace. It is grace that God would save us from those things. Years after this took place, Paul would write in Romans chapter 1, he would write 
about people who had rejected God and turned away from them. And he would say that God gave them over to the lusts of their heart and to impurity. And otherwise, he, in other words, he would say that God looked upon those who had rejected him and he didn't strike them with lightning. He didn't make anything wild and crazy happen. Instead, he just said, okay, fine. You want to reject me? Have it your way. Go pursue everything you ever hoped for and dreamed for. Go pursue everything you think is going to make you happy, every, every pleasure, every joy that you think is going to fulfill you apart from me. Go ahead and pursue those things. That is judgment. That is the worst possible judgment. For God to let us chase after everything we think we want while ignoring him is judgment of the highest order because those things will only lead to our destruction and to separation from God. When God breaks us and snaps us out of our delusions, that is grace. That is his kindness at work. I mean, even Saul slash Paul understood this. Look at how he would describe his conversion later on in Galatians chapter 1. He would say, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. He's saying, look, I was the star student. I was head of the class, right? But then he goes on to say, but when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And he goes on to explain all that God did in him and through him. Paul knew. It was grace that knocked me down on that road. It was grace that blinded me. It was grace that brought me into a time of chaos and confusion. God's revelation to himself was an act of grace. One of the kindest things God can do for me, one of the kindest things God can do for you is to help us see the inadequacy of all of the ways that we try to deal with our insecurity apart from him. And that's what Saul does, or that's what God does, excuse me, for Saul right here. And in time, like his life is never going to be the same. God's going to use him to change the world. But for now, he's still lying in the dark in Damascus. No doubt very confused about what's to come. Like when your whole job is persecuting Christians, you sort of have to quit that job once Jesus has appeared to you, right? And when your whole job has been persecuting Christians, you can't just sort of like walk into a church and be like, hey guys, I'm, no, hey, we're cool now. Like, no, like this is not like... He's confused. Everything in his life is up in the air. But the first signs of clarity are about to come through a man named Ananias. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you might be thinking, wait a second, didn't Ananias die in Acts chapter 5 after lying about his offering? Different Ananias. Here we go, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, um, in, seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So we're introduced to this man named Ananias. And as Paul is recounting this story later on in Acts 22, he would say that Ananias knew the law, that he was a follower of Jesus, and he was well-respected by Jews in Damascus. And Jesus appears to him in a vision, and Ananias responds immediately. He says, here I am. 
And he says, hey, go to this street called Straight, which if you go to Damascus today, you can still see that street. It's a, it's a big deal. Go there, find this house, find this guy, lay your hands on him, pray for him. He's going to receive his sight. And don't worry, he'll be expecting you. And <laughs> I just can't imagine... Ananias' thought process through this entire thing, but I'm going to try. I picture it going something like this. So first of all, he's having a vision from Jesus, which was not a common occurrence. Like, there's a reason why when this stuff happened, it ended up in the Bible. Like, it didn't happen that often. So he's living his life, doing what he does, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him. I have to imagine Ananias is like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. He's appeared to me. This is incredible. Okay. Be cool, be cool, Ananias, be cool. Yes, Lord, here I am. Uh, hi, Ananias, I've got something I need you to do for me. Oh, yeah, okay, <clears throat> yeah, yes, whatever you'd like. I'd be happy to, happy to do that. Okay, well, I need you to go to uh, Straight Street. Oh, yeah, of course, Straight Street, no problem. Got my groceries from there yesterday. Like, absolutely know exactly where that is. And uh, you're going to find uh, the house of a man named Judas. No, not that Judas, different Judas. Uh, you're going to find the house of a man named Judas. Oh, yeah, Judas, he's my buddy. We watched the game together last night. I know exactly where that is. No problem. And, 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 and then uh, Ananias, once you get there, you're going to find a man named, uh, a guy from Tarsus. He's, he's in town visiting. Oh, great, yeah, Tarsus. Yep, six-day journey, 140 miles. No Tarsus. Lovely this time of year. I'd be happy to uh, welcome this traveler to town. Uh, his name is Saul. Hold up. Jesus, I'm going to need you to speak into my good ear. I think you just, I heard you say that you want me to go lay my hands on Saul of Tarsus whose whole reason for being in town is to arrest people like me and have us killed. What's next? Is there a Bengal tiger I can go visit? Like, what is happening here, right? He's terrified. He's terrified. And rightfully so. We talked about Saul's insecurity. This is a totally different kind of insecurity, right? He's being asked to do something that is more than a little bit scary. And we see these feelings come through in his response to the Lord in verse 13. It says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He says, Lord, I, this does not seem like a good idea. But Jesus speaks back to him in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias says, this guy's got a bit of a reputation. And I love the way that Jesus responds to him. I think this is so important. First of all, there is no shame. Jesus is unoffended by the question that is implied in his Ananias' statement. He is unoffended by this, his sincere question and does not shame him for asking it. See, I think something else we do when we're insecure is we become very controlling and very directive and we want to cut off conversation. And I think sadly that happens in a lot of Christian contexts where often people with honest doubts and questions are shamed and they're told to stop asking questions and just have more faith. And I don't know where we ever got the idea that that's like a healthy way to deal with our questions, but certainly not from the Bible. <laughs> you look in the book of Psalms and how much of that is interaction between David and other authors and the Lord just wrestling through all sorts of questions. 
See, one great thing about God is he is very much not insecure. So he can handle our honest questions. See, disrespect and obstinance and disobedience, that's a whole different story. But that's not what we're talking about here. Ananias is afraid. And he asks an honest question. And Jesus gives us an answer that helps him make sense of the situation so that he can move forward with confidence. He says, listen, this man is no longer a persecutor of Christians. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, non-Jews, and the kings and children of Israel. I'm going to show him that he's actually going to suffer for me. See, the one who has inflicted so much suffering on Christians all over the place is going to become the one who proclaims the name of Jesus all over the ancient world. He'll be the most famous evangelist in the history of the church, and he's going to suffer for the name of Jesus, not bring suffering to those who follow Jesus. And where's he going to go? He's going to go to Gentiles. And that's a pretty big deal for us, because here we sit, 2,000 years later, 7,240 miles away from Damascus, thanks Google. And what are we? A gathering of almost entirely Gentiles, worshiping Jesus together, studying his word, learning how to follow him. And it started with Saul and a man named Ananias who had the courage and the trust to go and do the hard thing that God was asking him to do. It says right here in verse 17, Jesus explained himself, Ananias went, he entered the house. He knew he was insecure, or he was insecure, I should say. He knew that God was calling him to do something, but he was afraid. But in his fear, he trusted and he stepped out in obedience. Now, most of us, when we're dealing with things that we're afraid of, we're not going to have the benefit of a divine vision where Jesus comes and tells us personally that, hey, this risky thing that I'm calling you to do, it's actually not as risky as you think. But here's what I believe to be true because I know it from personal experience. I believe that God still meets us in our fear and our insecurity. And I believe that God can empower us to move forward in obedience. Now, what I'm about to say, I don't think it's for everyone, and I don't want to pretend like it is, but I, tr- I really believe this, that there are some of us here today where God is calling us to move forward in some kind of way, and we're scared. God is calling you to take that step. God is calling you to make that decision. God is calling you to make that change. God is calling you to a difficult obedience. God is calling you to, however it is you know, just have that feeling when you know God is calling you to do something, you know it, but you're scared. But you're scared, you're legit, you might not be, you're not being called to walk into a room with a person whose whole reason for being in town is to arrest you and have you killed, but you're being called to something that is legitimately scary for you and you're scared. And maybe if you're being really honest, that fear has compounded, so now you're even a little bit ashamed. You're ashamed of the fear that you feel toward what God is asking you to do. If that's you, I'm here to tell you, there is no need for shame. None, zero whatsoever. God is so good and God is so loving and God is so kind that he meets us in our fear. 
And he can empower you to take the step that you were so nervous about. He is not, he is not uh, offended by your questions. He is not threatened or upset by your fear. And it's often, once again, I know this from personal experience, it's often through the process of working something out with the Lord, of praying through something, of Lord, okay, I feel like you're calling me to do this, but this doesn't make sense and I don't know. It is through wrestling through that process that God gives us the courage to move forward. Maybe that's what you need to do. But there's no need for shame. There's no need for shame. Let's keep going. Verse 17. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Stop right there real quick. This man was a murderer of Christians in the not distant past. He has a radical encounter with Jesus, and now he is in town, he is blind, he is powerless, he is a sitting duck for Ananias, and whatever words Ananias has to say to him about the things that he has done, and the awful person he was, and all the terrible things he did to Christians and people like Ananias, and what does Ananias do? He walks into the room, and he calls him brother. What a powerful picture of the gospel. What a powerful picture of the gospel. That when Jesus gets a hold of our lives, when we respond in faith to him, that our forgiveness is so whole and so total and so complete that we are called brother, we are called sister in the family of God. That was true for Saul and that is true for us. And I just imagine how much it must have meant for Saul to hear those words. He's blind, he's hungry, he's thirsty, He doesn't know what's next, and surely he's had some time to think about how Christians in Damascus are going to reject him. And this man comes in and calls him brother. Yes, God had given him a vision that someone was coming, but could you blame Saul if he doubted? Man, how healing those words must have been when they hit his ears. Please don't ever underestimate the power of your words to speak life and blessing and wholeness into others. Our words are so powerful and they can be the means that God uses to comfort others in their insecurity and help them move forward. They're so powerful. Brother Saul, verse 17, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food He was strengthened. So Ananias prays. Saul's eyes are open physically and spiritually. And this former persecutor of the faith is baptized, becomes a baptized member of the body of Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit. And God would work through Saul in such magnificent ways that it would change the world. And Saul, who, as we've discussed, would eventually start going by Paul, his Roman name, would write these words in the book of 1 Timothy. And this is a lengthy quotation, but it's worth every word. Paul would write, I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, and only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a story. What a testimony. The insecure bully was a bully no more because he knew he belonged to Jesus and his identity was secure. If that can be true for Saul, it can be true for you. He didn't have to prove himself anymore because Jesus had made him whole. (laughs) And then the faithful Jesus follower who is scared of what God was asking him to do got to be the one to baptize him. Incredible. Incredible. One last thing and then we're done. I don't know what insecurity looks like in your life. I don't know what makes you feel insecure. I don't know how you act out in your insecurity. I'm very aware of those things in my life, although I'm aware enough to know I'm probably not aware of all of it. But I don't know what insecurity looks like for you. But I know this. I know that there is a God in heaven who loves you. I know that that God loves you so much that he sent his son into the earth to live a perfect life and to die on the cross for your sins and to rise from death so that you might know you are safe and secure in his arms. I know that he did that so that you might know that you have nothing to prove. I know that he did that so that you might know you are a gifted and called member of God's family. And I know that he did that so that you might know that when your insecurity bubbles up in your heart as it so often does in mine, that you can take it to your heavenly father again and again and again and be reminded of the secure identity he has given you. Because God is greater than your insecurity. I need someone in the house of God to say amen. 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 Let's pray together. God, we thank you that that is true, that your power is greater than our insecurity. And God, there's a reason why I'm not asking those who struggle with insecurity to stand so that we can pray for them because I'm quite convinced that we all struggle with insecurity in one form or another. Some of us are like Paul where We become bullies and we're harsh and we're mean and vengeful and all of that. Some of us are like Ananias where we want to do the right thing. We want to move forward, but we're afraid. Some of us, we lack confidence. Some of us, we just get nervous. Some of us, there's just all sorts of things going on in us and it's a whole mix that makes us insecure. God, I thank you that you meet us in our insecurity. God, I thank you that you have given us a secure identity that no matter what else is going on in our lives, that we are your sons, that we are your daughters. So I pray even in this moment, Holy Spirit, as our personal insecurities are top of mind, would you meet us? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you remind us that we are your children? Would you remind us that you see every bit of our insecurity and more and that you call us your children?
Would you remind us that we are part of the family of God and that is an identity that cannot be taken away? And Father, as we go about our lives this week and surely that insecurity will bubble up again and again, may you help us, may you remind us just to give those things over to you, to return back to you, to get filled up again with the reminder of who we are so that we might live not out of insecurity, but out of the secure identity that comes from being your children and that you might work through us, that we might be a blessing to an insecure world to help them see where they can go to find peace and find wholeness. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.